the Lord bless his word today as it is been read. May it encourage us. May it strengthen us. May we be humbled and tremble before the Holy Word of God, both as it is read and as it is preached today. Our text today is from Philippians 1, verses 27 through 30. Philippians 1, 27 through 30. There we read. Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that ye stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and in nothing terrified by your adversaries, is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, though, but for his sake, having the same conflict which ye see in me, and now here to be in me. We thank the Lord today for all his gracious gifts, freely and undeservedly bestowed upon you, Jesus Christ. Well, perhaps there is one gift for which you have forgotten to, th- to thank the Lord, namely the gift of suffering, suffering for Christ. Now, do I hear you say, Pastor, that suffering is a gracious gift given to us by Christ? Yes, you heard me correctly. That's what our text says today. Suffering for Christ's sake is a gracious gift bestowed upon all those who trust in Jesus Christ alone for their eternal salvation. In fact, suffering for Jesus Christ is not a curse, but rather a blessing according to our text this Lord's Day. In fact, it is one of the most powerful evidences of your salvation in Jesus Christ, that you suffer for his cause, for his sake, truth. Apostle Paul announces in our text today that not only has God graciously granted to Christians the gift of faith to believe in Christ, but he has also graciously bestowed upon you who have embraced Christ the gift of suffering. Now, some may be tempted to say... I'll take this gift, the gift of faith. That one I certainly will receive with gladness and joy. But you can keep the second gift, Lord, the gift of suffering. Give it to somebody else who might need it more than myself. I'll do just fine without it. But dear ones, God declares that faith in Christ and suffering for Christ are inseparable gifts of the one package of salvation. You can't have one without the other. Faith and suffering are not like different flavors of ice cream from which you may pick. May the Lord teach us, dear ones, not to despise in any way any gift that God would choose to give to us. And that especially goes for the gift of suffering. Because it is so difficult for us to understand that it is a gracious gift given to us when we are in the midst of suffering. From our text in Philippians 1, verses 27 through 30, we would note three exhortations given to Christians in the midst of their suffering. First, the first exhortation is, stand as one suffering, Philippians 1, 27. Number two, don't fear your adversaries, Philippians 1, 28. And thirdly, suffer for Christ as a gracious gift given to you. Philippians 1, 29-30. Let us consider then our first main point, stand as one in suffering. Read again in Philippians 1, verse 27. Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. Whether I come and see you, or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, 
that ye stand fast in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. Apostle Paul is the human writer of this epistle, which was written during his first Roman imprisonment in about 63 or 64 A.D. As it happened, Paul was apparently released by Nero soon after this letter was written, but was captured three or four years later and then beheaded by Nero. However, Paul, as we read through this epistle of Philippians, was not fearful. He was not bitter. He was not feeling sorry for himself at all, as we see in chapter 1 of Philippians, verses 20 through 24. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul in the midst of his suffering. According to my earnest expectation and my hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor. Yet what I shall choose I want not. For I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. Here, when since Paul's whole reason and purpose for living was Christ, no one could really rob him of his joy, even in the midst of suffering for the Lord Jesus Christ. This is one of the chief goals which Paul communicates in this epistle of Philippians. One can rejoice in the Lord in the midst of suffering for Christ. One has the grace given to him to rejoice in the midst of his or her suffering. One is not doomed to misery because of his or her suffering. And so if you are suffering for Christ, you can also learn in the midst of your suffering, to rejoice in the Lord. Here that the Philippian Christians were undergoing some type of suffering themselves, and hence the reason for this epistle. They're going to rejoice in the midst of their suffering for Christ. Note the mention of adversaries in Philippians 1.28. And note what is said about the same conflict. Paul is going through, they're going through, in Philippians 1.30. Paul says in Philippians 1.27, in effect, As citizens of Christ's kingdom, live in a way that is consistent with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. In your conversation, and some, you know, the English word conversation here doesn't simply refer to speech. But your conduct, the way you conduct yourself before others, live in accordance to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is pure. The gospel is holy. The gospel is merciful. The gospel is just in that God provided salvation for us by, by showing forth his justice, not forgetting about sin, not sweeping sin under the car, uh, carpet, but dealing with sin through his own son. And so walk and be holy as my people, God calls us to be, in accordance with the gospel. Sure, you are, Paul says to the Philippian Christians, sure you are persecuted by the Jews. You're persecuted by the Romans. But what did you really expect? That you would have no persecution in this world if you follow the Lord Jesus Christ? After all, you are citizens of a different kingdom than is the world. They're citizens of Satan's kingdom. You who trust in Jesus Christ are citizens of Christ's kingdom. And these two kingdoms cannot peacefully coexist. Together in the same world, there's going to be conflict. There's going to be persecution brought against Christians. Because we follow Christ. Because we stand for the truth. Paul then goes on to exhort 
the Philippians to stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Dear ones, in the midst of suffering for Christ, we must allow our afflictions and our trials to draw us closer on another rather than to divide us. The trials and afflictions through which Job and his family went actually divided Job and his wife. We see that Job's wife you know, wanted Job to curse God and die. And so there, the trial and afflictions in that family divided them, didn't bring them together, separated them. And in the same way, dear ones, we who stand together in the truth of Christ under the same terms of communion must realize that the sufferings of one another are not their sufferings alone, but they are the sufferings of us all. They are the sufferings of us all. We cannot stand aloof from one another when we undergo trials and tribulations as if it's just their problem. To the contrary, we must all the more pull together, as did God's people in Nehemiah chapter 4. Pull together, as we have read earlier in our Old Testament scripture reading, when Sanballat and Tobias sought to conspire together to stop the walls of Jerusalem from being built. It's very easy to to become discouraged, very easy to pull back. But, uh, dear ones, we must remember God sends these trials and times of suffering in our lives not to drive us apart, but to drive us together in unity and in love. You see, dear ones, trials and afflictions will either unite us or they will divide us, whether it's in the family or in the church. Unfounded and false public allegations against us will either make us or break us. Trials will reveal to us whether we are truly united together in an unbreakable bond of Christ's love held together by the sacred principles of God's word in our terms of communion. This way, what a blessed opportunity God has given to us to come alongside the needy, the confused, and the struggling in our midst and in our church when they are afflicted and tried so as to bear their burdens by suffering with them. A suffering is sent by God, dear ones, to bind our hearts together in love and in truth. Those with whom those with whom you are willing to suffer are those to whom you are truly united. I've been personally encouraged by the prayers, help, gifts and encouragement I have received during times of suffering in the recent past. There was how we need one another. None of us is an island to oneself or so self-sufficient that we do not need the love and the encouragement of one another to stand faithful and true. We may be inclined to think how this trial, offense, or injury has in various ways set us back in our goals to expand the kingdom of Christ. Others may stand back ridiculing, making fun, mocking, slandering, but I believe I have seen in my own personal experience how my suffering, and I've seen in your suffering, how your suffering for the truth has been indeed the suffering of us all and has united us rather than dividing us. Even as... Solomon says in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 9 through 12, better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, the one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him that is alone when he falleth, for he hath not another to help him up. Again, if two lie together, then they have heat. But how can one be warm alone? And if one prevail against him, two shall withstand him. And a threefold cord is not quickened. 
What we're talking about here, Jones, is a unity based upon agreement in the scriptural truth as summarized in our terms of communion. And we find in Amos 3.2 the question asked, can two walk together except they be agreed? And the answer, of course, is no, they cannot. And Jesus says that a house or a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand in Matthew 12.25. Likewise, Mr. Rutherford states how two different views of church government cannot peacefully coexist in the same church. For two different views of church government imply that there really are two different churches within the same church. Uh, in his book, A Free Disputation Against Pretended Liberty of Conscience, uh, page 98, such opinions and practices as make an evident schism or division in a church, two distinct churches of different forms, views of government, and pretending to different institutions of Christ, of which the one must by nature of their principles labor the destruction of the other cannot be tolerated for each pretending their fellow churches to be of man and so of the devil though they should both make one true invisible church agreeing in all fundamentals and many other truths yet sure the whole should be a kingdom divided against itself and this destroyeth peace and unity. Thus, dear ones, the peace, purity, and unity of Christ's church have been rent over different views of church government in our own situation, in our own church, making very specific application to some truths to our own situation today, as I believe it's warranted. Since your elders have practiced consistently since 1996 the same form of Presbyterian church government, in extraordinary times and have defended it from scripture, from history and reason and have sought to answer all questions brought to our attention in an orderly manner. It is our duty and responsibility before Christ to maintain good order in the church of Christ in brotherly love when matters of justice are brought to be heard and tried by simply requiring those who profess to be members to reaffirm their membership agreement so that we have the assurance that there really is agreement as members in the truth. That we're not two different churches. That there aren't two different views of church government. That we are united together. We have that responsibility to see that that is the case. That's what Christ calls us to do. Because these two different views cannot tolerate one another. They will seek the mutual destruction of each other. As Rutherford says, that is simply a law of nature. That's simply going to happen. And so to require, to impose a note that simply says, do we hold the same view of church government here? Do we hold the same terms of communion is what is simply being asked in this oath and which has been given opportunity now over six months for people to ask questions and to discuss with the elders about. The fact that there has been a refusal to do so, dear ones, only demonstrates the wisdom of what Mr. Rutherford said earlier, namely that two different views of church government cannot be tolerated or peacefully coexist, but each will labor the destruction of the other view. And so... Dear ones, we must come alongside one another. We must come alongside one another in our present circumstances. In all our sufferings, for they are not the sufferings of merely one member, but the sufferings of us all. And the sufferings of us all are the sufferings of Christ, spiritual body of which he is the head. You remember when Saul, at the time before he became Paul, rode to Damascus, and he was persecuting the church of Jesus Christ, that the voice he heard in Christ said, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Jesus Christ, being the head, this was his body with whom he was, re- he was united. And so to persecute or to, to bring charges or to bring slander 
or to be unjust in the treatment of those who are Christians is indeed to persecute Christ. Jesus said in Matthew 25, If you have done it unto the least of these my brethren, you have done it unto me. And so the first exhortation from our text is to stand together as one in the midst of suffering. I know that from those who have been excommunicated, they would reason that they are the ones being persecuted. They are the ones who are suffering for righteousness' sake. But again, it is not simply our word that determines who is suffering for truth. It is not simply their word that determines who is suffering for truth. It's Christ's word that determines who is suffering for truth. And that's why we as elders will continue to turn to the scriptures and to lay out before you a biblical position for the reason for the view of church government which we are exercising and have been exercising since 1996. People will have to judge for themselves whether that is biblical or not. I understand that. But on the basis of the principles which we believe to be true, we're standing for the truth and that excommunications in such cases where there are two different views of church government, two different churches within the same church are not unlawful, not unjust. The second main point is don't fear your adversaries. In Philippians 1.28 And in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. <clears throat> Paul next exhorts the Philippians not to be terrified by those adversaries who are the means by which suffering may come. In this particular case, Paul most likely refers to the Jews or to the Romans who were very often used as instruments of persecution against Christians. We, dear ones, need not fear our greatest enemies. Even when they cast us into prison, deprive us of our liberties, slander us, to silence our testimony for the truth, and that for two reasons. Reasons, Paul states. First of all, the first reason is this. Our suffering for Christ at their hands is a token or a demonstration or proof of their destruction or judgment to come. For they are not merely persecuting a Christian for maintaining the truth of God, but rather they are persecuting the whole body of Christ and even the head of the body, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Now, it may not be a proof to them who are persecuting their impending judgment, unless they repent. But it is a proof to us who are suffering, who are being slandered, who are being maligned. It is a proof to us of their judgment, for they are persecuting Christ. And again, I'm not putting into the same category here and make a distinction between those brethren who have been excommunicated, who are truly enemies of Christ and enemies of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are those who simply want to destroy Christians. There are those who want to destroy the gospel of Jesus Christ and intend to do so. I believe that that is the, the context that Paul has in mind here. And so I'm not applying at this particular point saying that in the same sense these who have been excommunicated are enemies in the same sense. Please do not misunderstand me. That I do not believe. These are erring brethren in our judgment, backslidden brethren, uh, but they are not, in our judgment, enemies of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. They certainly, we would consider them to be enemies of the truth in various areas and in various ways, taking a, a, a position opposed to that which is true but not enemies in the same sense in which Paul is here speaking. <clears throat> Another reason for us not to fear uh, our, even our greatest enemies is this, according to Paul, our suffering for Christ is also a remarkable proof 
substance of our own salvation. How is that, you may ask? Well, because our voluntary suffering for Christ and his truth is a proof of our union with the Lord Jesus Christ, our union with martyrs from the past, faithful witnesses from the past, who are willing to stand in opposition to all who would come against the truth. You remember what the Lord Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, verses 24-26. The disciple is not above his master, nor the servant above his Lord. It is enough for the disciple that he be as his master and servant as his Lord. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more shall they call them of his household? Fear them not, therefore, for there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed and hid that shall not be known. Fear not those who come against you when you suffer for the truth, when you stand for the truth. Likewise, in Matthew 5, verses 11 and 12, we read, Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you, and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Paul says, rather than being discouraged that we suffer for Christ, let us be encouraged that we are suffering for Christ. By this means we can turn that which is fearful into something that is encouraging. How can our adversaries overcome us with fear? Truths assure us that the Lord will overcome them and will preserve us as his own. So, the exhortation of the Apostle Paul is don't fear your adversaries. But before moving on to the last point, it's perhaps most difficult for us all in our suffering and when we are suffering for Christ. It's not that we suffer from slander or attacks of those who oppose the gospel of Jesus Christ, but who are enemies of the gospel, but from brethren with whom we have shared such sweet fellowship and communion in the past. Pain and heartache and that I would submit to you than being beaten bodily by those who who hate the gospel of Jesus Christ. When lies and slander, distortion, conspiracy, misrepresentations of various kinds are brought against us by those with whom we were so close, there is a pain that reaches to the deepest recesses of our souls. We can much more likely bear, as I said, the persecution and attack of those who hate the gospel, but what a trial to bear when it comes from those whom we love in the Lord. You'll recall face the same situation as he describes in Psalm 41, verse 9, where he says, and speaks of this pain, Yea, mine own familiar friend in whom I trusted, which did eat of my bread, hath lifted up his heel against me. The Apostle Paul in Philippians 1, verses 15 and 16, likewise addresses the same situation. And he says there, Some indeed preach Christ, even of envy and strife, and some also of goodwill. The one preach Christ of contention, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bonds. So, Paul even recognizes that from those who were preaching, who stood for the the truth, he doesn't accuse them for holding, even in this case, a different view with regard to doctrine or worship or government. What he says is, their motives are wrong. Their motives, they may be saying what's right, but their motives are wrong and what they are doing. They're not doing so sincerely. They are doing so to add to my affliction and to my pain in bonds. And so Paul as well knew what it was to have those who were near him, close to him, in similar situations, who held the same 
faith essentially to have motives to affliction and trial against him. Especially in such situations, dear ones, we need one another and we need to stand together in love and in the truth. God, keep us from becoming bitter, from becoming resentful or hateful toward any of our brethren. May we continue to strive for reconciliation in the truth of Jesus Christ. The third and final point is uh, suffer for Christ as a gracious gift given to you. Look with me in Philippians 1, verses 29 and 30. For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which ye saw in me and now here to be in me. Two gifts or graces that are said here to be given to us for Christ's sake, faith and suffering. Faith to embrace Jesus Christ as our righteousness and salvation is not something we naturally possess. It is the gift of God granted to us for Christ's sake, not for our own works, not for our own righteousness. There is nothing we can do to earn the gift of faith. It is sovereignly bestowed by God upon his elect whom he effectually calls into himself. Faith in Christ, dear ones, is knowing Christ through his word, agreeing that what is known about Christ and his word is true, and then trusting and receiving as your own that which Christ has promised in his word. Faith is unlike other graces flowing from salvation. For faith alone, dear ones, is the instrument by which we receive the salvation that's promised to us in Christ. We are not saved by repentance. We are not saved by love. We are saved by faith alone. For faith eyes the righteousness and looks to, outside of oneself, faith looks to the righteousness of Christ alone and receives it rather than looking inside oneself, which is where repentance and love are found, rather than looking inside and find, the ba- uh, find that means of justification, faith simply looks to and rests upon what Christ has done. Repentance is given to us as a grace and as a gift. It is not to be minimized. But it is not the instrument of our justification before God. Faith alone is the instrument because faith is that grace which looks outside of ourselves and looks to the Lord Jesus Christ alone. Not looking for any qualifications in ourselves, but all qualification in Christ. No merit in ourselves, but all merit in Jesus Christ. And then from faith, dear ones, from that grace of faith flows every other grace which God gives to his beloved children. One of the gifts or graces that flow from faith in Christ is suffering for Christ. For faith unites us to Jesus Christ and suffering for Christ demonstrates that we have been united to him by faith. And in order for us to better understand what it means to suffer for Christ, I think it would be helpful for us to first understand what suffering for Christ is not. And then we'll talk about what suffering for Christ is. Suffering for Christ, first of all, is not an evidence of one's lack of faith. Consider that the prophets and apostles all suffered for their faith in the one true living God. Job suffered for his faith in the one true living God. In fact, this verse teaches that suffering for Christ always accompanies saving faith. In fact, if there is no suffering for Christ, one might even begin to question whether there is evidence of faith in their life, that there is no suffering for Christ. If the road that you're walking is so broad 
but no one is offended by anything you do or say, then I would suggest you're walking on the wrong road. Second, suffering for Christ is not a proof that the Lord doesn't really love you. To the contrary, suffering for Christ is a proof of one's union with Jesus Christ. According to Philippians 1.28 Are we also to conclude that God the Father did not really love His only begotten Son because Christ also suffered while on earth? Of course not. In fact, it was a covenant of love between the Father and the Son made in eternity that brought Christ into the world to suffer on behalf of of sinners, that they might know the love of God through Jesus Christ. In fact, suffering for Christ actually brings some very, very real blessings into our lives and grows the graces that we have received from Christ. David testifies to this effect when he says in Psalm 119, verse 71, it is good for me that I have been afflicted that I might learn thy statutes. It's good for me that I have been afflicted, that I've suffered, that I might learn thy statutes. Thirdly, suffering for Christ does not mean God is not sovereign over all things, as if Satan is really in control does not mean that Satan has outwitted God or overpowered the Almighty, the fact that you suffer for Christ's sake. Consider the words of Joseph, who knew what it meant to suffer for the Lord at the hands of his own brethren. In Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, where Joseph testifies after the death of Jacob, their father, and the brothers were restless as to what Joseph would do with them. Now that their father was dead, would he try to get even with them for what they had done to him and selling him into slavery, hating him as they did? But Joseph says this, But as for you, ye thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good to bring to pass, as it is this day, to save much people alive. And of course, we have what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Fourthly, suffering for Christ does not mean God is not holy or righteous or just or fair. For as a result of Christ's death and resurrection, even suffering for Christ has been transformed into a sanctifying means of grace for which we have now been delivered from all the evil of afflictions. As a result of Christ's death, we've been delivered from the evil of afflictions. As we read uh, earlier, Psalm 119 Uh, Verse 71, it is good for me that I have been afflicted. Our suffering as Christians, dear ones, is not God's way of getting even with us, but is actually a means of making us more like our Savior, who, according to Hebrews 5.8, even as a man, Jesus learned obedience by the things that he suffered. He learned obedience as a man. He learned obedience by the things that he suffered. Fifthly, suffering for Christ is not suffering for unrighteousness' sake. It is not suffering for sin. That is not suffering for Christ. For we read in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 15 through 16, <clears throat> But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or as a thief, or as an evildoer, or as a busybody in other men's matters. Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. 
We may suffer God's loving discipline, dear ones, for our sin, but that is not the same thing as suffering for the righteous cause of Christ. Sixthly, suffering for Christ is not meritorious. We're not made more acceptable before God or more righteous in His sight by our suffering. For all our righteousness, dear ones, is but filthy rags, according to Isaiah 64.6. We can never be made perfect by our suffering. You see, this is the false principle upon which the Romish doctrine of purgatory and penance is based. And that is what has led to the false doctrine of indulgences. That there is this treasure chest in heaven of merit that certain saints have done more than God required of them. They have suffered more than God required of them. And that merit that they have earned is placed in this treasure chest of heaven. And that can be that merit can be taken out of the treasure chest by way of paying indulgences and applied to take people out of purgatory where they're being purged for however many years, allegedly, that God determines that they need to be purged for their sins here upon the earth. You see, the merit of Christ in such a false view means nothing. The merit of Christ, according to the Scripture, is what makes us worthy before God. It's not our suffering that is meritorious. It is not our good works that is meritorious. Dear ones, there is no redemptive value in our suffering, in our suffering for Christ. There's no redemptive value in our suffering for Christ. All redemptive value is based upon Christ's suffering for us, not our suffering for Him. Seventhly and finally, suffering for Christ is not limited to bodily persecution from the enemies of God by way of imprisonment, exile, or death, but may include bodily afflictions, illnesses, sicknesses, the loss of family members, the loss of material possessions, and the rejection by family and friends. All of these we can see in the suffering of Job. He was suffering for righteousness sake. He was suffering because Satan saw him as one who stood for the truth. And Satan did, behind the scenes, everything he could possibly think of to drive Job away from his faith in God and standing for the truth. Now, there wasn't necessarily physical human beings that were being brought against Job. This was all done behind the scenes. And yet, what was going on in Job's life was suffering for righteousness sake. Suffering, suffering for the cause of Christ. And so the trials and afflictions that come into the life of those who are standing for the truth may in fact not be due to some sin in their life, but may be in fact due to the fact that they are standing for the truth. Certainly we should look and seek God's grace to reveal to us if there is sin that we are clinging to or holding on to, that we've not repented of, and repent of that sin and seek God's forgiveness for that sin. But I submit to you, dear ones, Christ didn't suffer while He walked upon the earth due to sin in His life. He died and he suffered while he was here upon earth as a sin bearer. But he suffered so much simply because he was faithful and true and righteous. 
And so did Job. Dear ones, all Christians suffer for Christ, but not, but not all Christians suffer in the same way for Christ. We can look at those in various countries throughout the world, say, who live in Islamic countries and what they have to suffer, or communist countries and what they have to suffer. And we may say, I see that they're suffering. But I'm not suffering for Christ. But again, all Christians suffer for Christ. That's as much as a gift given as faith. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you have been given the gift to suffer for Christ. It may not be in the same way, but you are suffering for Christ in various ways. And we need to look at it from that perspective. Well, having looked at what suffering is not, or what suffering for Christ is not, what then is suffering for Christ? Well, suffering for Christ is receiving from Satan or other adversaries affliction of some kind because we belong to Christ and stand for his truth and righteousness. It means we are hated by Satan, but loved by God. Suffering for Christ means we are hated by Satan, but loved by God. How so? Well, suffering for Christ is a powerful testimony born in our spirit by the, by the Spirit of God that we are united to Christ. What are we suffering for? Are we suffering, again, because we have sinned, or are we suffering because we have stood for the truth? Well, that's a powerful witness and testimony in our heart that we belong to Christ if we are suffering with Him. If we've taken His cross upon our backs and are carrying that cross, as it were, denying ourselves and following Him, and for that we're suffering, well, that's a powerful evidence that we belong to Jesus Christ, that God loves us, He cares for us, He considers us one of His own. We ought to hold it forth as a badge of honor that God even allows us to suffer for the name of Christ with whom we will spend all eternity, who has purchased us from hell and granted to us heaven and every other blessing we enjoy. It is a privilege to suffer for Christ. Not a dishonor, but a privilege and an honor. Also, we see that God... Loves us in our suffering and Satan hates us. Because suffering for Christ is a means of making us humble and more like Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8 through 10, we read the following. We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. The life of Christ might be manifest in our body. And so, again, suffering for Christ... If Christ humbled himself to become a man and to suffer on our behalf, when we suffer for him, the grace of humility grows within our own lives. And rather than complaining, and rather than groaning, rather than resisting the fact that we suffer for Christ, Again, Jesus says that you are counted worthy to be united in the same company with the faithful witnesses of the prophets, the apostles, the martyrs from the past. We see in suffering that we're hated by Satan but loved by God. Also, 
because suffering for Christ is a way in which the Lord prepares us for heaven. We see that this world is not our home. We are strangers. We are sojourners in this world. But heaven is where our citizenship is. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.